Welcome to the Conversations with Christians Engage podcast, where we go in-depth with practical ways for you to pray, vote, and engage. Today we are joined by Tara Ross. Tara is an author, speaker, and former attorney, an expert on the Electoral College. We will be discussing her book, Why We Need the Electoral College, which is our book club selection for July. To sign up for the book club, visit our website at christiansengage.org and click on the book club tab. Hey everybody, it's Bunny Pounds here with Christians Engage with another conversation. This is our book club episode. In the month of July, we are gonna be reading an incredible book called Why We Need the Electoral College by my friend, Tara Ross, here in Dallas. Now, what you need to know about Tara is she is a nationally recognized uh, expert on the Electoral College. She has written a couple books. This is one of them. This is her latest one from 2016. And I think it's quite prophetic, actually, as we got into 2020. Um, But anyway, she's also written a couple other books. One of my favorite books is a book called Under God, George Washington and the Question of Church and State. I love that book back in 20, 20, uh, 2008. And then her Prager U video, which is really interesting on Did You Understand the Electoral College, has had millions of views, like over 60 million views. So she teaches people about the Electoral College, and she's a historian and a writer. It is so good to have you, Tara Ross. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Woohoo! Well, tell me a little bit about your background and how you started writing and studying history. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was a board law student, I guess, is the answer to that question. Um, I don't know. It's gone in, it's gone in baby steps. And if you, I, I could never have predicted that I would land where I am right now. If you'd asked me during my first or second year of law school, I would have probably just like laughed at the idea that I would ever study the Electoral College. Who would do that? I And how did it do turn into this? I don't know. But what happened was when I was a third year law student, I was in a taxi cab wreck. You should always wear your seatbelt in a taxi cab, which I was not. And so I got thrown around a bit, got broke my arm and I needed um, an easy st- subject to study. I mean, that's just the long and short of it because I couldn't take notes in class. And so I uh, started an independent study on the electoral college and one thing led to another, and uh, several years later, I had an opportunity to turn a law review article that I had written about the Electoral College into a full-fledged book, and so I, I took it. And so that, that's just kind of how it started. I didn't ever set out to do this intentionally, but it, it kind of it came into will of its own being or, so, or into being of its own will, I guess. I think so. that's how life works. We, we follow a passion and God opens more doors for us in that passion. And you never know where the path is going to lead. You never know. Fascinating. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I loved your previous books, even before you got into the Electoral College, just bringing together faith, um, the founding fathers. Um, tell us a little bit about that research and what you discovered about America. Well, so I, the George Washington book that I wrote, I co-authored with another lawyer who lives in Colorado. His name is Joseph Smith. And we it was really his idea, um, but he, he and I decided to do it together. And we spent three years reading, or, or three years total to write the book. But we read everything that George Washington had ever written about religion and about matters of church and state. 
he wrote a ton about it. You have no idea unless you go to look for it because people are always so busy talking about Thomas Jefferson or one of the other founders in this regard. But it turns out George Washington had to wrestle with this issue over and over again throughout his life um, as commander in chief, as commander of the Virginia Regiment, which he did when he was very young, um, as a state legislator, which he was. And it would be something like a Quaker that didn't want to fight because it was against their religious views to do so. Or, um, how you know, how do you, there were actually there were lots of conflicts with the Quakers. Uh, some of them, like they were people back then were afraid that Quakers were spies because they would not help the American army or would not do anything. And so George Washington was just always confronted with these kinds of issues. Of course, as president, do you, do you send government-funded missionaries to go uh, negotiate with the Indian tribes, or it just, it came up over and over again. So we spent a lot of time reading everything that he'd ever written. The book is uh, about half of it is just reprinting what he himself said, because we wanted people to see that we were not taking things out of context. But the first half of the book is just chronologically going through his life, each each period of his life, what were the issues that came before him and what did he do about it? And the answer is that he thought that government and and religion should work together basically in partnership that, you know, obviously government's not going to endorse any particular denomination or sect or anything like that. But he felt that if you want to be successfully self-governing or if you want to successfully lead an army, you need religion because religion also supports uh, virtue and morality and these sorts of things. And without without virtue and morality, you can't be successful. So he, he really just saw it as beneficial. He was very practical about it. It wasn't evangelical at all. It was it was practical. You need this to be successful. Well, he saw that our government was formed for a moral people, right? And without a moral people, it's hard for us to have self-government because we don't know right. how to govern ourselves. And so that's a key principle that our founders recognized and and why they thought religion was so important for the American fabric. Okay, well, talk to us for a few minutes. Break down the Electoral College for us. I'm not asking you to repeat the PragerU video. Everybody can go watch that. But what are some of the misconceptions that people have about the Electoral College? Well, they have lots of misconceptions. They think it's outdated or they think that it was created because we had horse and buggies back then or, you know, just something like that. But the truth is that the Electoral College was created because the founders understood human nature. They understood that power corrupts. They understood that you must always be on guard against these things or tyranny will follow, whether it's the tyranny of a single elected official or whether it's the tyranny of an emotional mob. And so they worked to set up a government that would would protect our liberty from these things. Uh, You know, you hear over and over again, that America is a democracy. Well, it's not a democracy. The founders weren't trying to set up a democracy. And that's because they were students of history and they knew what had happened in all of those failed democracies that came before them. And it was this, um, It's a. this is a modern uh, example, but sometimes you hear people say two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. You know, that's not fair. <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a good situation. They were trying to avoid that dynamic. And so they set up, checks and balances and separation of powers and all of these things that, you know, we kind of, we hear those phrases sometimes, but it permeates our constitution and the electoral college is part and parcel of this system of checks and balances. So good. Now you write, which I love this statement, that the founders were equal opportunity skeptics 
They didn't <laughs> trust people in power and they wanted to protect the system from voters and elected officials alike. Um, right. Dive into that a little more. What did you mean by that? Well, that is a misconception about the Electoral College. You asked about that earlier. That people think the Electoral College was set up because the founders were elitists who didn't trust the people. It missed the whole point. The point is they literally did not trust anybody. They sat there. There's a historian named Carol Birkin who says they sat there in this room in Philadelphia. They were the most likely men to be the first president and the first United States senators. And they were so convinced that power corrupts and that humans are fallible that they sat there and debated how to put checks and balances on themselves. They didn't even trust themselves to hold that kind of power and, and to not, to you know, they were afraid they would abuse it themselves. So our system is structured so that literally nobody has to be trusted. The states and feds check each other. You know, the pre, you got a president, you got a legislative branch, you got a judiciary, you got power divided sometimes between elected officials or, and the people. Like, so everybody at some point in the process is, is you know, has a check on them. And that's, again, just because we know that that people are imperfect and they are fallible, power corrupts, ambition, greed, all of these things are real dangers. And we need to have something in our process to protect us from it. And so that's why we have the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch. We're also having on our podcast uh, next week, Rob Henneke from the Texas Public Policy Foundation to talk about the courts and why that's mm -hmm. important to protect our liberties as Americans. Um, but that that is so good about the Electoral College. Now, people don't understand that when they're voting for president, they're not actually voting for president. They're voting for an elector. Can you mm -hmm. explain that system to kind of break sure. it down for people? Sure. So you go to the polls on election day and, you know, you see last year or yeah, was that just last year? <laughs> it seems like so much has happened. <laughs> I know. Whenever it was, um, you, we saw the names of Joe Biden and Donald Trump on the Texas ballot. Now, um, here's, or on every state ballot, really, but it was, you weren't really casting your vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. You were casting your ballot for, in Texas, 38 presidential electors. That number will increase after the last census. But last time around, it was 38 electors. Every state has a certain number of electors on the ballot. That um, that will get, well, sorry that you elect those presidential electors. Um, the reason why I use Texas as an example because that's you know I'm sitting in Texas, but Texas has 36 congressmen and two senators. That's where we got 38. Every state is the same, so you are actually casting your ballot for 38 individuals to go represent your state. Now in Texas, we had 38 Republicans ready to serve when Donald Trump won. We had 38 Democrats who were also ready to serve if Joe Biden won in Texas. There were 38 for every single third party candidate on the ballot had to present their own slate of 38 people. And so this is this is important, I think, because you're not counting on uh, a Republican to cast a ballot for a Democrat or a Democrat to cast a ballot for a Republican. These are individuals who have been selected and they want to do what they have been asked to do. And that's why the so-called faithless elector phenomenon is, a, is relatively rare. It's, it's actually very rare. We think it's common because of 2016, but historically it almost never happens. And so anyway, you go you go to the, uh, the voting place on election day, you cast your ballot for your presidential electors. Those individuals, once they've been selected, they go on to cast their ballots later in a second election that's in December. And that December election is the one that actually decides who our president's gonna be. It takes a majority of electors to win the presidency. 
So good. Great, great way of telling everybody about that. In our on-ramp to political activism class that we have online, guys, we actually walk through political parties and, and how to get involved in your choice of political parties, but actually how we elect the electors at the conventions, which is fascinating. Um, those are people that are in our communities, in those congressional districts that people know. I actually just had lunch with someone who served as the electoral uh, college person for Collin County today. And so those are people that we know in our community that we trust in a political party and we send them to have this amazing experience to vote mm -hmm. for the president that the people have chosen from that, that uh, state. So now we hear a lot of arguments, Tara, about people complaining, my vote just doesn't count. You know, I just live in Texas. It's just a red state or I live in New York. It's just a blue state. And we complain about these things, but you actually lay out in this book about how the Electoral College actually protects voters. It, there's a divide between urban and rural in our country. There's a Western and an Eastern division. Um, how does this system actually protect us from voter fraud? I'm giving you a ton of questions. <laughs> Lay out some of the advantages of why this system protects everybody. Okay, I'll try to hit them all in order. So yeah. to, to <laughs> hit your first point, yeah, if, if I'm if I miss one, let me know. Um, so it, the to the first part, I would just say, look, go vote, y'all. I mean, everybody should go vote all the time. I always wonder what would happen if people didn't just assume that things were going to turn out how they were going to turn out. You know, in 2016, nobody predicted um, that a handful of states. Uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, et cetera, would, would turn, uh, would go from blue to red. Everybody thought they were in the blue column. You don't know what's going to happen. What would happen if everybody in South Carolina or South Carolina and, and Southern California is what I meant to say, were to just show up and vote one year and not assume that they were defeated just because that's how it's been in the past. Same right. for Texas. You know, there's lots of blue voters in Texas that, that feel defeated. Well, just go vote. You don't know what's going to happen unless you do. So I, I, feel that that's more of a, I don't know, an apathy problem or a, a lack of education problem. Yeah. And just just go vote. I mean, that's it. And there there are, you can go Google it. My, I was talking to somebody and Googling it with them. And, and there are a surprising number of historical elections that were decided by just a handful of votes. And it, it matters. It definitely matters. So that's number one. The, then to talk about the urban versus rural divide, you know, the Electoral College is very interesting because the way it works in practice, you end up balancing all of these interests. And, and it's like, it, but it works in different parts of the country. So in New York, for instance, you might have a leg up if you live in New York City and maybe New York City does tend to drive the outcome of the state. And so it feels like cities are all that matter, right? And, and, and there are actually um, civil rights leaders in the 70s who, who use these types of examples to say, Minority voters are actually treated better because of the electoral college, because of the outsized influence that some of these urban areas have in certain parts of the country. So that's just an interesting tidbit because so many people say it's racist now. But in the 70s, the civil rights leaders were arguing that it actually helped minority interests because of the um, the community. First of all, you have a sense of community in a big in New York City, and you're working together on other issues. But then also that enables you to bring your ideas forward. And then the New York City has an outsized influence on the rest of the state. So that's kind of a big city influence. But then if you look in other parts of the country, um, you know, especially in the, the kind of the flyover states or whatever, 
there's the extra um, electoral votes that you get from United States senators ends up giving up giving rural areas a leg up in other ways too. And so then rural interests do also get to get reflected in the system. It's just a really nice balancing act that the way it's spread out over the country with every state kind of acting on its own, doing its own thing, having its own priorities and influences, and you end up, and even if you look at the swing states themselves, what you see is there's a real variety in the swing states, right? I mean, if, you know, well, depending on the swing states are changing, even though they pretend like they don't, but like, you know, Virginia and Florida, let's say, those are not the same states, you know, or you, you just, you can compare any of these two states and you've got different industries, you've got different cultures, you've got different parts of the country, you've got the coast, you've got the, the plains, you've got, you've got all sorts of different um, characteristics and interests in this country reflected in the system because of the way it's structured. And you make the point that it forces the presidential candidates to be coalition builders. Mm -hmm. It forces them to talk to every part of the country. I mean, we're never going to get rid of federal funding of ethanol because every presidential candidate starts in Iowa, right? <laughs> I mean, it, you, it forces them to talk about the interests that are important for the, all those communities. And can you imagine if Hillary Clinton only talked to California and New York? I mean, can you speak to that a little bit more? Well, Hillary Clinton actually made a mistake in 2016, and she thought that she or her campaign thought that she was going to win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College vote. They were worried about that. And, um, and so they, wait a minute, did I do that? Yeah, they, they, they thought they were going to win the popular vote, but or no, win the Electoral College vote, but lose, I knew I said that backwards, win the Electoral College vote, but lose the popular vote. That's what I meant to say. And so she was really worried about that. She did not want to defend an Electoral College victory without also a popular vote victory. Of course, that's focusing on the wrong details, right? But that's that's where their thinking was. And so they decided to, on purpose, go to parts of the country where she was already strong and drive up the vote in places like Chicago. And so that is exactly the opposite of what the Electoral College is supposed to make you do, right? You're supposed to be building coalitions. You're supposed to be learning about a wide variety of people. You're supposed to be traveling all over the country, or at least with your ears traveling all over the country, listening to different concerns and different needs of voters. So if she had spent just a little more time in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, she probably would have won the election, but she was so focused on driving up the popular vote that so she didn't do it, right? And it's just a demonstration of what the Electoral College encourages and what it should be doing. Well, and you make the case that, you know, George W. Bush won in 2000, not because of Florida, but because he flipped West Virginia, right? Right. So right. It's these, these handling of blue states or red states versus versa that actually can change the whole presidential outcome. Exactly. And in West Virginia had voted blue for decades. I mean, it was a diehard Democratic state for a long time. But George Bush saw an opening because the environmental positions of the Democratic Party had left many coal miners in West Virginia feeling pretty unhappy. And so he saw an opening and he spent a few million dollars there compared to Gore, who basically ignored it. And he ended up flipping the state. A little tiny state with a handful of electoral votes ended up changing the whole thing, which also, by the way, goes back to your point about voting and how you should never, ever just assume you're going to lose. Just go vote and, and get your friends to vote, whatever. I mean, this, this is a our system is, I, I see it like a pendulum, like things just swing back and forth and back and forth. Texas used to be blue. You know, now it's red. Now some people think it's going back purple. California used to be really red. Now it's really blue. But, you know, these things change and, and, and it's just constantly evolving. And, and that's, 
kind of part of the beauty of it, really. It is. It is. And we've just we've got a fight right now on educating people um, because that's what we do at Christians Engage. Most of our listeners know we're educating people to pray regularly for their elected officials, their city, state, nation to vote in every election reminding them how important that is. Again, we don't endorse political parties or candidates, but our civic duties as Americans and as Christians to be salt and light and take Jesus to the ballot box and really discover what the Bible has to say about the issues of our day is so important. And then on engagement side, people need to understand these basic concepts. And so that's why we felt it was so important to read your book and to encourage <laughs> people to read it because we, we let the media and some of the rhetoric in our culture define what we believe instead of actually searching for what is true. So what is some of the worst rhetoric that you're hearing right now? And I'm not I'm just going to limit it to, to Electoral College, but some of the stuff that you're like, as a historian and someone who studies history a lot, is like, what? <laughs> right. I mean, kind well, of, you think people I mean, need to be aware of. I think probably one of my biggest pet peeves right now is the movement to pretend like the founding generation was just a bunch of, I guess, like sexist, racist, horrible, evil human beings. And we should, you know, do all we can to separate ourselves from them or something. I don't know. I, I, I hate that view of history because it, it's not accurate. It's not fair. And by the way, any country that decides, I mean, this is the best way to tear apart a country that you'll find, right? It, to tear apart all of your history and your your ancestors and all of that stuff and pretend like none of it was any good. The right. truth is, the truth is that the founders did something amazing in the moment in time that they lived. What they did was unbelievable. They lived in a world where the king could tell you what church to go to. <laughs> you know, I mean, women did have rights, but that wasn't an American problem. That was a global problem. I mean, there all of these things were everywhere. They permeated everything. And the founders in the face of that saw that they had a right to think for themselves and to be self-governing. And they took a huge step. They took a huge step and they, they, they knew they could be hanged. They knew that they would be just, you know, killed, killed as traitors and that that's what that was. But in the face of all that, they took a huge step. They bucked the king and they said, no, we're not going to do this. And, and, they couldn't run. It's, it's a little bit like if you're going to change all of these ills in the world, it's a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. They couldn't change everything all in one generation. That's not possible. Mm -hmm. But they took the, it was a, it was a, or, or it was a marathon and they ran the first leg and they passed the baton to the next generation, right? And they, I guess there's no batons in a marathon. So maybe that's a bad analogy, but, but, but whatever. Right. So they, they, passed, right. they passed the baton to the next generation and they said, now you go. And sure, some of them, even in their own lifetimes, George Washington could see that there was problems with slavery. And he took small steps that he could on his own plantation, like stop selling slaves, stop separating families. He freed his slaves in his will. But they, there was no way that that, whole gener that generation was going to be able to solve every single problem. And to castigate that, them for that now as if that's a, a failing of theirs is just wrong and, and unjust. No, they took the first huge leap on the path to freedom and liberty. And they, then they pass the baton to the next generation. And every generation since then has taken the baton a little bit further down the, down the field. And they've said, and they've passed it to the next generation. And America has been the greatest hope for, for liberty and for individual freedom and self-thought that it, this world has ever, ever seen. And so to, to portray the founders in any other way to me is just 
ridiculous, ridiculous and shameful. So <laughs> I love your feistiness. Yes. Story and feistiness. Okay. Um, can you, let's, we, we kind of glanced over that voter fraud issue, but let's talk about that a little bit. And any, anything you want to share about 2020 is fine. I didn't specifically ask you to talk about that, but you know, how does the electoral college actually protect us from voter fraud? Well, it, it does even, even in the middle of the 2020 mess, it, it really does. And so I'll, first I'll just say the general theory, I guess, of that, and that, but then address 2020 in particular. The reason why the Electoral College helps to protect us against fraud or even human error, right, is because it's, um, it's because of the decentralized nature of the system. If you're going to affect an election outcome, you need several things to be going your way. First, the national election needs to be close. The national electoral vote needs to be close. Then you also need a handful of states that themselves are close and that can be easily thrown one way or another with you know a handful of stolen votes. Now, those two things don't usually come together at the same time, okay? They, they do sometimes, obviously, but they often they don't. Often the margin is so wide in the electoral college vote that you never even get that far. But if you do get that far and you've got a situation where both national and a handful of state votes are close, then the other thing that you need going for you is you need to be able to predict in advance where it will matter. You need to be able to predict in advance that messing with this state is going to change the national outcome. Now, if you can do that, then probably a whole mess of other people can too. But often you can't. I mean, nobody had any idea of Florida that 500 votes was going to decide Florida right. in, in 2000. Nobody knew that. And if they told you they knew that, then, then you know, maybe they have a bridge to sell you too. I don't know. <laughs> but but in, then you could look at an uh, election like 2004, where everybody knew that Ohio was going to be a problem. And so lawyers, politicians, everybody, poll watchers descended upon the state. Everybody was watching it. Okay. Now, maybe some would argue to go to 2020 that we knew Michigan and a handful of states were going to be a problem. And so they were more closely watched. Now, what I, what I will say is that um, I'm happy that we were dealing with 2020 under the Electoral College and not a national popular vote system for two reasons. One is we'd probably still be recounting <laughs> if we had a national popular vote. I'm not sure what would have happened in that scenario. There would have been no way to contain the problems. As it was, we contained the problems to a handful of states that we all knew we needed to figure out those states one way or another. We didn't fight over anything in Texas or California or Illinois or you know, any of these other places, it didn't matter that the elections were not close enough in those states. There were no disputes that were going to change the outcome. So first, it, it isolated the problems. The other thing it did for us is, is, as I said, all the attention was focused on those problematic areas. Now, if we'd had a national popular vote, none of us now would know that maybe Philadelphia has potential problems that need to be investigated with its voting system, right? right. So it has Whatever you feel about how 2020 came out, it, it did do one thing for us, which is that we now know where we need to focus in this country and where potential problems lie. And even if, you know, you know, I'm trying not, as you can tell, <laughs> get into the fight about yeah. what should or shouldn't have happened. But but no matter what you feel, like if even if we couldn't quite fix it in 2020, we all know what the problems are. And that's because of the Electoral College, because the Electoral College focused our gazes right where they needed to be so that we could see it. And in 2024, I mean, it's the responsibility of those state legislatures now to take over and to make good and sure that that, whatever that is, that it never happens again. Exactly. And that's where I've been telling people is just focus in on your state legislatures, make sure that they are passing great voter integrity 
election integrity laws um, that will keep some of this stuff from happening again. Right. Uh, but our republic is strong. It's going to be uh, even stronger in the years ahead. And that's because the founders set up us up a great system that helps us govern this great country. Well, so everybody, you need to pick up Tara's book, Why We Need the Electoral College. Here's what it looks like on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And then we'll be discussing it on a Zoom meeting the final Friday of July. So we all get on, we all hang out and we talk about the book. If you haven't read but a couple chapters, you can still come on. We're gonna be talking about the book and um, it's gonna be so great. And Tara, we just really appreciate your expertise. We thank you for bringing this subject to the American public. And we look forward to hopefully everybody will dig into this subject more because it's so important for our republic. Um, how, give me a, just, a, how can individual parents and grandparents teach their kids? What are some tools that you use to really help um, kids dive into history? I mean, I know it's, some people are just depressed that the next generation is not learning history. Is there any yeah. that you can lend into that? Oh, I don't know. Well, so you know that I write a, a daily history blog. And so um, it, it, I cross posted on my Facebook and on my website and a whole mess of other places, but I write a history story every day. So my kids, my kids mostly benefit from that, to be honest, like, cause I'm just always, whether they want to or not, <laughs> telling them, reading oh, it did you know, or quizzing them, do you know what the, what, you know, big anniversary occurred today? I mean, look, if you know that, then just, if you're thinking, if you're thinking about it, then tell your kids, you know, D, the anniversary of D-Day was not that long ago, a few days ago. Um, and depending on when you're listening to this podcast, I guess, but it was uh, a few days ago. And so I ask your kids, ask your grandkids, Hey, do you know what big event happened in the state history and tell them what you know? Um, I did write a kid's book about revolutionary war heroines that if, if anybody finds that helpful, then that's out there. But, um, you know, I don't know. I, I'm so immersed in it all the time that I I probably just kind of speak off the cuff to my kids about things. I'm not sure what well, else to suggest. Is, if, if God's given you some knowledge, if you've dived into a subject, don't be afraid to break it down and share it with your kids and grandkids. The, mm -hmm. the worst thing that's happening right now is that we are disconnecting from each other. We're disconnecting from the family table. Uh, we're not eating, right. we're not talking together, we're not having conversations, we're not arguing, we're not having critical thinking skills developed in our young people. So make sure that's happening in your family. You know, turn off the cell phones, put them away, right? That's actually what, well, he didn't say put away cell phones because that wasn't a thing then, but that's what Ronald Reagan said in his uh, farewell address. He said, he said, when you're sitting at the table, pass these stories on, when you're sitting down to dinner and make sure that it's not lost, make sure that you're passing on everything that you have. So good. Okay. Final question. What in the world do you do to relax? <laughs> relax. Uh, yeah. Uh, what this is this like? word relax that you mentioned. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> what does that look like for you? Oh, I don't even know. I don't. Um, right now I'm so busy running around all the time. It's probably not a good thing, but uh, I, that is actually a really good question. I need to do that. Okay, We're going to go on vacation to Florida in a few weeks. And so maybe I'll try to remember what that relaxing thing is. <laughs> okay. I'm going to hold you accountable, Tara, from one personality to another. Um, right. You have to unplug and relax every now and then. So. Yeah, I know so, for sure. I want to hear that you do that in the next coming weeks. Okay. Well, thank okay. you so much for joining us. And everyone pick up Tara's book, um, Why We Need the Electoral College. Um, join our book club. We're we're going through 
uh, political philosophy books, theology books, history books. Um, we've got Eric Metaxas coming on with us in a few months with his new book. We've got Ali Beth Stuckey coming on soon with her new book. Um, we're just got a lot of things going on. So we just want you to join the book club and dive into books because turn off those Netflixes and those Hulu accounts and actually dive into history and things that can actually change your life. So thank you so much, my friend, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is a production of Christians Engaged. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit that exists to awaken, motivate, and educate ordinary believers in Jesus Christ to pray for our nation regularly, vote in every election, and engage our hearts in some form of political activism. To learn more about us, please visit our website at christiansengaged.org. That's christiansengaged.org.